From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. People, for, for an America that now wants to awaken itself and break with the past, we have a new civil rights movement, and the significance of George Floyd is the, the, the civil rights movement 1950s began with Emmett Till and the brutal murder of a 15-year-old boy who was accused of wolf-whistling at a white woman. George Floyd is our Emmett Till. We have a new civil rights movement. We have a new conversation. Race is not on the back burner, it's the front burner. That is a profound change. Welcome back to season six of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Tragically, 2020 saw another year of killings of black people by police and wannabes, including the murder of 25-year-old Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia, father of five, George Perry Floyd Jr. in Minneapolis, and 26-year-old Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky. The deaths prompted nationwide outrage and a national conversation about the crisis in our criminal justice system. With us today is Donald Jones, author of three books on race, equity, and social disadvantage. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Don. Nice to have you on the show. Well, it's nice to see you as always. Great. Thank you. Um, So I guess let's start by asking why 2020 was such a profound transformational year in the fight for equality and equity? Well, it it was transformational in in this sense. Before uh, George Floyd, before we witnessed Derek Chauvin uh, place his knee on the neck of George Floyd, and I remember Jay-Z saying it was like he had his knee on all of our necks. I think America felt that. And before that, police brutality was on the back burner of the American mind. Uh, when blacks were shot and killed by police unarmed, despite the fact there might be several witnesses, uh, there was a pattern. Uh, there was an investigation. And after the investigation, the media would focus on not the policeman and not what happened, but on the individual who was killed. And they would typically be demonized. We remember that uh, Trayvon Martin was portrayed as a school delinquent with gold teeth, uh, a wannabe thug. And this is a sweet young child who was murdered. We remember Philandro Castile, who was murdered uh, when the policeman asked him to go for his driver's license. He go, puts his hand in the pocket, his pocket, and the policeman shoots him dead. Uh, perfectly compliant. Now we see him in a jumpsuit. And so it, it had been a process in which uh, instead of investigating the case, the media would uh, engage in a scapegoating narrative in which the victims would be put on trial. Uh, Or we would get myth. We would get the myth of a bad apple police. So uh, there were no systemic problems. It was all a question of bad apples. I think the significance of George Floyd is that it lit a fire under a generation of youth. And that fire would not be quenched by myth and that they would not accept the apologies and 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 the demonizing and the scapegoating narratives anymore. I think it did something else. And not only did it rattle us from this denial, what it did was it said that there are two Americas. There is an America in which if you uh, uh, ride a bicycle down the street, then you are simply a person exercising. Or if you jog, you're just a person exercising. But in another America, 
person jogging is eluding the police. In one America, a person who is walking down the street is a human being, and another, their potential drug dealer, if they're in a high, high crime neighborhood like Freddie Gray. And so there's this sense of a two Americas, a split, a fault line, uh, a breach of the great promise of equality. We're not equality for all. It's equality depending on the color of your skin, especially in the criminal justice system. And so for a generation of black people, for for an America that now wants to awaken itself and break with the past, we have a new civil rights movement. And the significance of George Floyd is the, the, the civil rights movement of the 1950s began with Emmett Till and the brutal murder of a 15-year-old boy who was accused of wolf whistling at a white woman. George Floyd is our Emmett Till. We have a new civil rights movement. We have a new conversation. Race is not on the back burner, it's the front burner. That is a profound change. Now, what I would say, though, is, uh, uh, you know, reminded of a song by Carol King, we, we've only just begun. We have a journey ahead of us as a country, and it's a journey to address not a specific, nearly not merely a specific case, but a, a problem of systemic racism. We need to explore what that means. That is a journey of a thousand miles. So far, the, we have just begun. We've begun the conversation, but it's a journey of a thousand miles. And we have begun only a few steps. Perfect, perfect. Um, so the accused, the accused in the murders of Arbery, Taylor, and Floyd are, of course, still awaiting trial. But in the wind column, more than 160 Confederate symbols were removed or renamed uh, last year, more than in the previous four years combined, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center. So is progress ongoing, and is there a follow-through in those promises made, promises kept? Well, I think that one of the tragedies of, of of American life is that we fled past things that are uncomfortable. We have uh, celebrated not uh, truth, but denial. And I think that, um, that, that the history of slavery and uh, the embrace, the, the tacit embrace of slavery by, by holding up Confederate soldiers who fought for this criminal institution is inconsistent with the America that we say that we are. If we are going to build a bridge to the future, those statues have to go. Uh, they represent the past. They represent white supremacy. And I, I, I applaud the progress we've made in getting rid of them. The, the, you know, black children, uh, all children deserve a country in which those relics and, and people say, well, what's the place? And well, the place is in a cemetery. The place is in a museum. And so I applaud the, the removal of the statues. But I want to say this, as powerful and important as that is, I think that there has to be a structure to our discussion. And I think at the center of that discussion is not the statues, it's this question. How do we stop Black people from being killed by police? How do we address the crisis of justice that those killings represent. And so we need to, I think, think about how we go forward. And I think the way forward is to, inspired by those relics which suggest white supremacy exists, is focus on active systemic racism, which is causing black people currently every day to face the, the danger of death from police. Don, are, are we seeing those promises from, from this last year? Are we, are we seeing the follow-through? Because as you said, 
change needs to happen at, at every level of our society, the government, corporations, culture. It seems like such a gargantuan undertaking. And so what's it going to take? You know, as my father would say, how do you eat an elephant, you know, one bite at a time? Well, I, I, I like what you're saying. I see, I think that what's happened is, is that we have been focusing on things like overt racism. We've been focusing on hate. But the most dangerous, the most uh, destructive racism it does no longer in the 21st century require hate. It happens. It's been so normalized and so legitimated that it happens every day. It, it's it's what I would call it's it's the the notion on his face. It's colorblind. So, for example, nine times, and I want to talk about black people getting killed. But in order to understand it, we have to understand systemic racism. There are three levels to it. One is there is mentality. A mentality is, is that blacks are presumed guilty, presumed dangerous, or presumed to be beasts. The second level is institutional policies and laws which enact those presumptions. For example, if you look at the blacks who are arrested in the drug war or people arrested in the drug war, blacks are nine times as likely in many cases to be arrested for drugs uh, as whites, despite the fact that blacks use drugs at statistically identical rates in the context of cocaine and marijuana, yet nine times as much. Last year, for example, we arrested 542,000 people for marijuana, uh, the, an overwhelming disproportion of them black. Uh, now, what does that have to do with death? It has this to do. Every time a person's arrested or stopped, whether it's for drugs, whether it's for, and we have something called a war on crime, we've arrested people in Fort Lauderdale for riding a bicycle without a registration. Whenever we arrest someone, whenever we stop someone, there's a risk, if you're black, of being killed. The, what we have not done and what we have not beginning to address are statutes, laws, and policies, which, and, and this, is the, this is what drives incarceration, that same thing drives death in the streets. Uh, Eric Garner was arrested for selling Lucy's. Uh, do we really need laws against people selling Lucy's? Uh, you know, uh, how many blacks have been killed being arrested simply for alleged possession of marijuana? Uh, and so what we need to do and we need to look at those policies and laws, the sentencing rate disparity with crack cocaine and, uh, and, and, and powder cocaine is huge. We spent, for example, $7.4 billion on opioid addiction. That's treatment. The eighty percent of that went to treatment, almost none to incarceration. When we deal with crack cocaine, all almost all of that goes to sentencing. Which you know, one one person, one comedian makes a joke. He says we give out time like it's lunch. And so, what we need to do is we need to change statutes and laws. There has been no follow up on that. We need to end the drug war as it ha as it currently exists. We should fight a war against people selling drugs. We should not fight against a war against people who are addicted. We should medicalize that problem. The people who are, who are addicted to crack cocaine, much of that is mental illness. We need to treat that. We should send in social workers, not police. And so it's, it's the, 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 the lack of follow through is in looking at the, the, the discrimination as it exists at the level of policies and laws particularly in the context of the drug war and the war on crime. We didn't stop abolish, start abolishing laws, which massively incarcerate, and in the process of making those massive arrests, subject thousands, if not millions of blacks, to the possibility of being maimed or killed. 
That's where we haven't followed through. We need to change our system from the ground up. We need a new, not merely a few reforms, we need a new criminal justice system. Well, not just in, in criminal justice, but to bring an entire race of people to to even ground in in redlining laws, in, in educational reform, in banking laws. I go for a loan, someone who's actually has a better credit rating but is black, I'm more likely to get the loan. Systems of discrimination are interlocking. And so we have housing discrimination is a linchpin of much of what we're talking about. We've created situations in which black people, we have have something called American apartheid. The woman who writes a great book in which she documents that 85% of black people live in neighborhoods which are de facto one race neighborhoods. The same schools which were segregated in 1950 in Miami are still in Overtown and Liberty City segregated. When you, What we've done is we've concentrated poverty. As we concentrate poverty, we concentrate problems. People try to understand, well, why is there so much violence in the Black community? It's a symptom of desperation. Uh, we have not gone forward in terms of people living in the city. It's gone backward. There's more joblessness, not less. We've lost ground. And so there is a disconnect between this sort of narrative of progress and this narrative that we are a society. We see blacks, perhaps, who are basketball players and tennis stars. Good for them. But the masses of blacks in the inner city are still landlocked in a place which is jobless. Deindustrialization has created a post-industrial ghetto, which is worse than a ghetto I grew up in. More crime, less jobs, no hope, no opportunity. That's so we what we need is massive investment. We need investment in schools. Instead of talking about defunding the police, we should be talking about how do we fund quality education in the black community? We should be talking about how do we create jobs? Uh, maybe we could rebuild the infrastructure of the inner city. We need to create jobs. We need to create opportunities. Right now, that conversation is stalled. The conversation about mass investment has been stalled and it's been derailed by discussions that shift the focus away from where it needs to be. We not only need a new criminal justice system, we need a new deal for black Americans where they have the same opportunities and not just democracy as a promise, but democracy as a substantive reality. That's what we have never seen. Uh-huh. Despite Mr. Coates, um, it, is there a, a glimmer of hope anywhere on the horizon? Well, I think that the hope is the 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 fire and the energy of the youth. The hope is the fact that I talked to one young person. He said, we are going to end police brutality in our lifetime. And I felt his determination. I felt his courage. That is hope. I feel hope when I talk to my students and I see the fact that they are, I still remember there was a a, a movie many years ago in which the guy says, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. We're no longer going to accept scapegoating narratives. We're no longer going to accept a couple of dollars. You know, Black Lives Matter gave $90 million. Let me just tell you, that's a drop in a bucket. We're going to have to make a massive, you know, during the pandemic, Blacks had had another pandemic, a pandemic of joblessness, a pandemic of desperation. We've got to address that. We have a new president, a new beginning. I would say to Joe Biden, you need to talk to people who have uh, studied this issue for years. 
get some good advice. Stop listening to whoever you've been listening to so far and get some new people in there because they're, they're, they're pushing the, the, the direction we need to go in is not small change, it's big change. And that's what we haven't done. That's what we need to do. I just want to say this. You know, I spent 20 years writing about this. I wrote uh, Race, Sex, and Suspicion in 19, in 2005. I wrote Fear of Hip Hop Planet in 2013. And I wrote uh, Dangerous Spaces Beyond the Racial Profile in, in 2016. I'm on my fourth book. It's called The Presumption, Racial Justice in the United States. The people who are leading the discussion don't call me. You know, the people in the White House. I mean, so what you need is you need to find people who studied this issue for years, who have, you know, who have experience, who, who, who are veterans in the civil rights struggle. I've spent 20 years, not just as a law professor, but as an activist. And, and, and so we, 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 he needs a new brain trust. And I think that if we can, he can get the right advice and we can, as a, as a nation, commit to real change. We have a bright future. But it's, it's sort of at a crossroads. And one road leads to a new future, and one road leads to a status quo. We can't go down the road of the status quo. Well, after the, watching the, uh, the Golden Globes last night, uh, it, it looks like there's uh, some, some change going on there. And, and I wanted to ask you if you thought five years ago, 10 years ago, if uh, the U.S. versus Billie Holiday would be, you know, a, a viable uh, movie for a studio to produce? Well, absolutely, it would not be. And I think what's interesting is we are at a level in our public discourse of saying we reject what happened in the past. But notice what's happening. We are condemning actions 20 years ago, 30 years ago. We, we will condemn the fact that there are black jazz musicians who tried to go to a hospital that wouldn't get accepted. So all of that is good, but I think that to bring that home, we need to try to face the difficult choices of today. So for example, let's say that you are a black person and you grew up in an inner city and because of your conditions and, and other things, you end up with a criminal record. Can you get a job? Well, I think there are millions of black people. In other words, today, an arrest of a black person is modal. That is a normal experience. There are very few people who get out of certain communities without that. Uh, so what we've got to do is we've got to change the past and we've created barriers for blacks to get jobs. We've created situations in which we have cycles of poverty. How do we break these cycles? How do we interrupt the cycle of violence and, and drugs? It's like uh, something passed down uh, and so what we've got to do is to break those cycles, we have to invest in not just in, in the community, but in, in a retrospective or introspection in which we identify the assumptions that we make every day, which perpetuate racism. Uh, journalists need to do that. Uh, the media needs to do that. And I think the media, for me, is still a hugely part of the problem and that they're still producing documentaries, documentaries and series which demonize black people. And so, so I, I would like to see, uh, you know, uh, like there should be a, a meeting, uh, like a reparations conference, in which we talk about the damage Hollywood has done and continues to do. 
not has done, but continues to do. And the ways in which some of the narratives that Hollywood produces do more to disguise what the problem is than to illuminate it. Reparations, all another podcast with you. So, I mean, I, I, I think that it's what Holly wouldn't do. It's not that, not that they're not doing good things, but it's what they wouldn't do. So, for example, do most people know that in Baltimore, where I grew up, uh, Baltimore had, had, was sued for systemically violating the rights of black citizens, arresting them without probable cause. How many people know that? Do, do people know that... Uh, the situation for blacks in terms of employment has been twice, the unemployment rate for blacks has been twice what white says has been during the pandemic. Those are the things that we should be focusing on. We should be focusing on the lived experience, the reality today that blacks are experiencing. It's good to talk with Billie Holiday, but we need to focus on what is happening today. I think news media simply produces entertainment when it comes to blacks. What we need to do is produce real insight into what that lived experience is. That's what I think is not being done. Okay. All right. Well, we're lucky to have you. I'm looking forward to your next book. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining us. All right. I'll, I'll see you around. Thank sir. you so much. Thank you so much. All right. Take care now. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer for a whole new season of interpreting legal issues in the headlines. If you love our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's episode is brought to you by Miami Law's top-ranked international law postgraduate program with specialties in both general and inter-American. For more information, visit law.miami.edu forward slash academics.